Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the fifth in a series of podcasts over the coming weeks, promoting the Seminole Wars Foundation's self-paced virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launch December 22nd. Registration to join Lommer's Legion is now open. Visit www.seminolewars.us for details. Joining us today is one of the most renowned and respected among Seminole War living history enthusiasts in Florida, Jesse Marshall. An autodidact of both the Seminole and Civil Wars, Jesse has literally walked the walk as well as talked the talk about soldier life in those historical eras. For nearly three decades, Jesse has portrayed the Federal Blue in Seminole War events or the Confederate Gray in Civil War confabs. He has walked 80 miles to recreate a rebel march and then engaged in a simulated battle upon arrival. He has also trekked some 65 miles along the perilous shoulder of U.S. Highway 301 from Tampa to Bushnell just to commemorate the movement of Dade's men from Fort Brooke to their untimely demise from a seminal ambush in December 1835. His boots have literally worn right off his feet. His knapsack has pinched him too tight to move naturally. His high beaver skin hat carried forage well enough for him, but needlessly irritated his head. Yet he emphatically maintains that, whatever the discomfort, to interpret a period both properly and professionally, one must get the regalia and reactions right, or not partake in the exercise at all. In this episode, Jesse Marshall explains what it was like to trudge all those miles just to satisfy his curiosity of what it was like so he could interpret it better for people like us who go to the spectacles commemorating the Seminole Wars throughout the state parks of Florida. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. Jesse, tell us about your unforced road marches as a military period reenactor. They weren't quite the Bataan Death March, but they did take their toll on your body. In 1994, there was an event in Louisiana, the Red River Campaign of 1864, and it promised to be the ultimate reenactment because we marched almost 100 miles over original roads following the footsteps of the campaign between General Banks' Federal Army and Trans-Mississippi Confederates under Kirby Smith, etc. I thought, well, that sounds really cool. And some Florida fellows were going to go, and I signed on with them. I believe that the trek was about 85 miles. It was a learning experience. My shoes fell apart. I was wearing some replica brogans. They came apart after a couple of days, and I had to make sort of like a sock moccasin, keep trekking along. But actually, it was very comfortable. It was something I'd read about Valley Ford, making moccasins out of blanket fabric, followed along with that. The thing I remember during the trek was the hours and hours every day. The guy in front of me had it wearing a pack with a little mess tin strapped on it, and he was sort of bow-legged, so when he walked, the little tin would swing left and right. I just remember four or five days of watching that tin swing, and it kept me in stride. It was a week long. And the intriguing thing about it is at the end of that march, we got to the battlefields at Mansfield and Pleasant Hill and staged the anniversary reenactments. I believe it was the 130th of the battles of Mansfield and Pleasant Hill. What really was fascinating is after marching with these fellows for a week, I mean, we're all already familiar with the drill from going to reenactments for any period of years. 
But that marching in ranks with these fellows, when we actually went into the battle reenactment, unlike any other event I was ever in, there was a sort of intrinsic knowledge that every man knew right where his rank and file partner was. There was no need to dress ranks. We moved a lot faster in line of battle, even though we were in close order. We actually moved as a double quick in line of battle across an open field at one point. And the line was really well kept, and I was really surprised by that, because normally at a reenactment where you have all these disparate participants coming with various levels of drill and skill, sometimes sergeants and officers have to dress things up constantly, and it slows things up. But I remember after marching for a week with those fellows, it was like we could move in a really good line without even thinking about it. It was really interesting. Also, when the skirmishing started, we didn't keep close order. We actually hunkered down and were moving in more of extended order, although we were close. And that was mainly to move quickly over broken ground, much like what the Seminole War veterans were describing, the need to form extended order to move through broken ground. And in the Civil War, it was the same. General Sherman mentioned that he was surprised at Resaca in 1864 to see the Western federal troops, or at least watch certain troops, their battle lines would dissolve into powerful skirmish lines as they closed near the enemy. And he thought that was odd, but he was assured that they could deliver their firepower and shock with equal ferocity in that order as they could by trying to maintain a line on broken ground. This was not your only opportunity to show your dedication to the craft. Not willing to leave well enough alone, a few years later you accepted the challenge of walking in the steps of Dade's March, which marked the start of the Second Seminole War. Subject came up with some fellows, like what if a small squad of us were to do the Dade trek from Tampa up to the Dade Battleground, and if Tampa Tribune would cover it, it would be some more PR for the event and something to do. So some of the fellows signed on. Now the difference from Red River was, when I went to Red River, uh, my head was filled with all the knowledge from reading uh, Worsham's Jackson's Foot Cavalry, and, and I applied a lot of tricks. I did not carry a knapsack. I only carried a blanket roll, a very comfortable set of equipment, uh, no change of clothing, essentially as the Confederate Army describes their circumstance. When we were going to do the Dade March, it was, of course, we were playing regular troops, and the regular troops were held to a different state of discipline than the armies of the 1860s, the volunteer army. So, okay, we're going to wear the knapsacks, we're going to have the full equipage of Dade's command, and we're going to do the trek so far as we are able. Now, my understanding is that when Frank Laumer and other reenactors, uh, the pioneering fellows, did the Dade trek back in the 1980s, they really did trek the distance, and they followed rural routes. They passed through some farmland and things of that nature. Well, when we organized this, by necessity, we didn't have a lot of time, and so we decided just to follow 301. And by doing the 301 route, we would set up a living history encampment at certain points, advertised for the event. The Tribune caught up with us at Fort Foster, about 25 miles out, and they were there when we were patching up our feet and everything. Well, I will say this, not far beyond Fort Foster, the 301 idea proved to be interesting in that we were trekking along the side of the road and a rock truck turned over on 301 nearly crushed a couple of us and we had nothing to do with it a truck had an incident with a car in its front and we just happened to be near the side of the road it was obvious that 301 is very dangerous for pedestrians and bicyclists it, it really is what we decided to do after that is through the more urban uh, along the route we used a van from one of our chase vehicle vans, and we just rode our squad through the worst traffic bottleneck, and then they would jump out and trek during the day, and then we camped at the several points along the way. We got to the event. Now, I had pretty bad blisters on that trek, and uh, I had to go to work on Monday, so I sat the battle reenactment out, healed up. 
What insights did you gain from both marches, in particular about the wearability of soldiers' knapsacks at the time? At Red River, most of the reenactors were older gentlemen, a lot of Vietnam veterans. That was 1994. Most of us doing Confederate were wearing blanket rolls, not a lot of equipment. We were told, however, that a lot of the Union reenactors had been forced to fall out because they were wearing the knapsack and things like that, and it proved too much. And I didn't know what to make of that. But when we did the Dade March, we all wore the knapsacks, and we had them packed, the blankets in them and the great coats strapped on top and spare equipage inside them. Boy! Those knapsacks are murder, that's for sure. We had one of our guys had to go get a cortisone shot because he couldn't feel his arm after marching a day with that knapsack strapped on him. There was a veteran of the war with Mexico in the 4th Infantry that mentioned that the poor soldier is worse off than a mule strapped in his harness. And boy, I can testify to that. Uh, Knapsacks are murder. How did your equipment hold up? Well, the equipment was fine. Of course, the man was the weak part. Ten years after Red River... I was not in as good a shape as I was as a youth. You know, that was part of it. And actually, it helped me out in this sense. I was unaware of it, but I have flat feet. And one of the reasons why the blisters developed where they did, at least in the day trick, evidently is because I have flat feet. I've since had that corrected by medical insert. And actually, I find since then that I've had a great deal more comfort walking than I used to before that. (laughs) How well this time did your replica Brogan boots handle the march? They did perfectly well. We were wearing the historical brogans made by different makers. Most of us had new pairs for the day trek. When I was at the Red River event in 94, a lot of the reenactors had been in the hobby for 10 years or more, and a lot of guys were using used equipment. The reason my shoes fell apart is because I bought them used and they're a little worn out. And I finished them off, you might say. As an interpreter, how valuable was this march, the Dade's march? One thing I can tell you is when you're wearing the knapsack, it is very difficult to handle the musket or even to load it. The way the knapsack, and again, unfortunately, our replicas are not exactly like the originals. They're kind of close from what we know about the originals, but not exact, so it's not specific. However, at least in the best interpretation we have of them, once they're fully packed, it's very difficult to use your arms any way other than really just the manual of arms where you're kind of just moving the gun about. You can't really load, you can't do much when you're strapped in the knapsack the way it fitted. In the book British Military Spectacle, which is an excellent book, the author points out that the knapsack equipment, which was also worn in the European armies, was just murderous. There were cases of British soldiers in India that were committing suicide after days and days of marching in full pack because of their agony. There's even a reference to a British surgeon referring to pack palsy, where the men couldn't breathe or move their arms. Subsequently, I've seen American military inspection returns from 1835 that note that the knapsack was found unsuitable for active field operation in that so swagged or swung down that it usually sat on top of the cartridge box of the man, and he couldn't open his cartridge box when he was wearing his knapsack. Can't handle your ammunition when you're wearing it. Well, what that tells us is that when Dade's command was ambushed, they were wearing their knapsacks, and we assume they were. Most of the men would have had to divest themselves of them in order to commence active resistance. That's quite telling, and actually kind of terrifying if you think about it because the knapsack the way our replicas are designed if they are a correct interpretation of the original you really almost need another man to help you pull it off the way they're fitted on with their straps and the chest strap to get it off so you can handle your ammunition well not only that we have the reference that Dade had allowed his men to put their greatcoats on over their accoutrements 
because of some wet or rainy or cold weather. Well, that meant that not only would they have to throw off their knapsack, but they'd also have to unbutton and divest themselves of their greatcoat so that they could get at their ammunition. It's not just a matter of the ambush and the men hitting the dirt and firing back instantly. They basically had one round, and to fire another, they would practically have to undress from the circumstances of the case. Stand under fire. And imagine that's quite striking. How do popular historical events of a military nature lead to less historical accuracy in the presentation, but a greater historical spectacle that better captures the imagination of the people who are witnessing it? We know that popular reenactment events also provide a great deal of spectacle. So you have hundreds of reenactors coming together to reenact a battle, particularly. And the interesting thing to me is that's actually less reenacting because the reenactors are recreating a battle, but they're not doing it in an accurate way. Dade's battle lasted several hours, for example. And the reenactment lasts about 30, 40 minutes. It's in various accounts. It was mainly a fight with the guys popping up behind trees, laying on the ground and loading over several hours. Well, that would be kind of boring to an audience. It doesn't provide the dramatic effect that staging the event in the form of a production does. In order to make the reenactment provide a spectacle to the audience, the spectators can see some of the Seminoles. They can't see all of them, but they can see some of them. They see the soldiers. And so while we call the battles reenactments, I've often thought that the term would be better used for the individual reenactor going through a historical process, whether it's woodworking or how to load a musket. In the Dade Battle reenactment, which your small team had marched all the way from Tampa up to Bushnell to participate in, there are some liberties that must be taken. For instance, Major Dade is shot from his horse, but the reenactor does not fall dead. He usually has someone help him off the horse. What other liberties must be taken for safety reasons and to provide the spectacle that those witnessing the reenactment expect? So there's no confusion among the public. This is explaining that in our bizarre 1830s-esque outfits that we're interpreting the U.S. Army, even though the uniforms are very alien. In fact, just a few years before Major Dade's battle, the common field dress of the U.S. Army was gray. It was a similar uniform. It was made out of gray wool. If we were interpreting, for example, the construction of the Fort King Road in the 1820s, we would be wearing gray. And if we did, I can tell you that the, any program that was done, the public would automatically assume that the reenactors are interpreting the Confederate Army because there's an automatic assumption that from movies, I suppose, that the Confederate Army wore gray and every gray-clad 19th century person must be a Confederate. There's no drummer or fifer with Dade's column in the reenactments, and there were none originally. But this is something the public might expect to see or hear. We, we would if we could. Often the reenactors want to have the drummers and the fifers present at the reenactment of Dade's battle. It's not because the music was there or that it was used, but because at least for the ceremonial portions of the event, like after the battle, when we're forming up for the salute and so forth, the music will play when it's present. If that gives the public the idea that they were marching through the wilderness in that particular parade order, that's not accurate. For Brady Corps, for the reenactors, for patriotic and other reasons, too, it's not infrequent that the replica colors of the second artillery, the Stars and Stripes, are born on the field during the reenactment. That is also inaccurate in that the 2nd Artillery Regiment's colors would have been present with its headquarters, which was then in Augusta, Georgia, and 
Secondly, the infantry tactics of the time were quite clear that battalions of less than five companies were not to carry colors at all. So Dade's men, in any case, wouldn't have had a color. Each artillery regiment only had two colors. They had a regimental and a national color. In any case, the infantry tactics adopted in 1835 are quite clear that even if the entire regiment with its headquarters present with the regiment, they would only carry one color at a time anyway, usually the regimental color in the field. The infantry regiments just carried a regimental color, and then in 1841, the infantry regiments were allowed a national or stars and stripes. Prior to that point, they generally just carried the regimental color, which is, had an eagle on it and a scroll with the regimental name. But again, a battalion of less than five colors companies was not to carry a color for multiple reasons. Namely, you had to form a color guard around it, and so you're pulling corporals out of the ranks of a handful of companies. And secondly, by law, a battalion of militia, for example, was five companies strong. And even though the regular army allowed only one color for each regiment, at least when it was maneuvering, even if it had two colors for parade, militia law allowed for two colors, one for each battalion of militia of five companies. But the regulations and the drills are quite clear that any battalion of the army below five companies was not to carry any color at all. Some people who come to see the spectacle may misinterpret what you're doing or misunderstand what you're trying to do. How do you handle that? Do you take any offense? I, for one, don't mind. I try to never assume that anyone in the audience is aware of what I'm interpreting without being too verbose, I hope. I usually try to keep my spiels five, several minutes maximum. I try to make it clear as soon as I start speaking, I'm interpreting a private of the United States Army artillery in 1835, so there's no confusion. But if somebody in the general public comes up and says, are you the French? Which, like I said, I've had that happen. I'll say, no, the sky blue was the fatigue dress of the U.S. Army in the 1830s. But again, you have the gray fatigue dress that predated it, which there are, I think, reenactors in the Northwest that interpret the Blackhawk War of 1831-32. And the gray fatigue dress is the standard for them. I'm sure if you were to ask any of those reenactors, they'd tell you that people probably frequently ask them if they're the Confederate when they're interpreting the U.S. Army. We understand the truncated nature of battle reenactments. To present a public spectacle, they must be condensed from the length of the original longer engagement that they seek to recreate. What do battle reenactments get right historically? And what does it show historical in the battle reenactment? Well, they're excellent demonstrations of the tactical manuals of the time. Even the largest Civil War events that I've been to in the 90s were memorable in my mind for large masses of fellows engaging in battalion drill uh, and maneuver over rough ground and keeping formation or not, or attempting to. Spectators that were watching that could see a lot of that too. They could see without even pressing it. They could see a line trying to maneuver over a hill. Notice the line can't really stay straight and while they're trying. Well, there's no bullets flying and knocking men down, but they're still struggling. The reenactors are putting an enormous effort in. That what I think may not be understood. I've read professional historians criticizing reenactors that what they're doing isn't really as historical as they think. And maybe it is or maybe it isn't. I think some of the criticisms are a little overwrought because, again, the reenactor in what he does doesn't even need to talk to the public. So, you see, he doesn't necessarily even need to communicate any larger ideas about what he's doing. That's what the professor does at a college, you see. You pay him, you sit in the chair, and he'll tell you what you want to know about this or that. The average reenactor 
at an event, doesn't talk to the public. He's part of the process. He's not really a historian in that sense that he's communicating to the public our larger ideas. The reenactor is partly engaged in a patriotic historical display, sort of pageant of America. It's folklore-ish. I only say that in the sense that Many of the most memorable experiences I've had at events were sitting around campfires with some really interesting people, people I never would have met or had a discussion with, and mostly about historical subjects or their relation to historical sites or incidents, family members, what have you. Meeting this wide spectrum of people has been a kind of interesting thing about the hobby, as they call it. Although we hear living history and reenacting used almost synonymously, they do have specific functions and are not all that similar in their purposes. In the jargon of the hobby, living history is the term usually used to describe an individual interpreter or group of interpreters that are interpreting specifically the functions of a military unit, how they drilled, how they equipped themselves, the camp, or a farmer, how he, what he did historically. Battle reenactments, by and large, are means of drawing an audience. They can give an idea of the battles they're interpreting in the sense that the reenactors are largely dressed in a mode that's similar to the historical dress used on the battlefield. They're using the weapons essentially used on the battlefield. They're familiar with the tactics that train the soldiers. But when we have accounts from the Civil War, for example, that at the Battle of Alusty, the once the firing was really closed in on upon, it was more of a, like an Indian fight where the Confederates were formed behind the trees and whatnot. Well, they don't interpret that at the battle reenactment of Alusty for two reasons. One, because Alusty, like Dade, has about a 30-40 minute battle reenactment. They're only showing a portion of the battle in a particular open field. Reenactors learned a long time ago that if you tried to interpret the chaos of combat, even in the 19th century, the way it was described specifically, then reenactors are going to get hurt. You'll have people shooting each other with blanks in the back of the head and blowing out each other's eardrums. It really is much safer to retain the reenactors in a line of battle in close order and firing by volley. By that means, Civil War reenactors have been extraordinarily safe over 50 years. There's been some incidents and even fatalities, but... In the almost 30 years that I have gone and either participate or spectate at Civil War reenactment, I've never seen a serious injury. I've seen a couple broken bones from falls from horses, but never a significant injury from the use of the historical guns. That kind of amazes. What term would you use if not battle reenactment? Reenactment, of course, is a pop culture term and it can't be changed any more than living history is used. I always had a personal preference for the, the 19th century term, sham battle. Uh, that's the term that was used by militiamen and military men in the 19th century in America, anyway, to describe holding a public battle reenactment or scenario. They did it back in the 19th century. The militia would hold musters, and occasionally, for amusement, they would have blanks, and they would engage in a mock battle as a means of enlivening their program. The Civil War, at least in the Confederate Army, I'm sure that the Federals did it too, but I've read about the Confederates particularly having blank-firing sham battles as sort of tactical training processes for actual combat. Sham battle wouldn't be popular with historical reenactment. It's not a real battle, it's a sham battle. The public should come because it's an authentic reenactment of the battle. Well, it is authentic. It is in itself authentic, but 
I think you understand my point. It seems to contradict the term historical reenactment, to have a sham battle. Sham has negative connotations. In the Army, if they say you're shamming, it means you're goofing off. Well, yes. Reenactors take their hobby seriously, and I'm a reenactor hobbyist as well, and I don't begrudge anyone their hobbies. Now, that being said, most of the events that I go to are on state or federal property, and so I'm usually reenacting in conjunction with volunteering. I've never partaken in the Seminole Tribe's own programming, like the Kissimmee Sluice Shootout event they held in the past. I know many of the reenactors have gone down for that. I mainly do the state park event. I continue with it in part as a civic function of sort of volunteerism on my part. Reenactments are an important part of fundraising for museums and battlefields. In fact, a big part of fundraising for many places tied in with staging one. The battle reenactment is designed in part for commemoration. It's designed in part for public consumption as a pastime and amusement. That was another thing I liked about Seminole War Reenact. In the original newsletter for the soldier reenactors, Kent Lowe put out editorials that clarify that reenacting, it's best if we use the functions that we can demonstrate. If we employ it to benefit an existing battlefield park where we reenact incidents that actually happen, are we supporting a museum or historical site, in other words? or historical society that's trying to use a program like it as a fundraising method. That's the kind of events that we would do, whereas there are a lot of events that are unrelated to historical subjects that often would sponsor Civil War reenactments or others. Not that that's wrong, but what happens is the more events, the fewer reenactors go to other events. It sort of stretches the hobby out. Seminole War reenacting is not very big, so I believe that Kent and others point was that if they limit the Seminole War events to events that have historical benefits to museums, historical sites, and battlefields, then you can probably guarantee more reenactors will show up for each one. Jesse Marshall, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us once again for The Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of The Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.